me of when my dad was a preacher because he preached in little churches and frequently was the only one that kind of got up and did everything. I always kind of feel for that person. Um, I'm just going to come out and say that I'm, I'm doing something different than I had intended to do. Um, as we are preparing for Advent, and, and obviously we're a tradition that talks about peace a lot, and, um, uh, and I think rightfully so, I'm, I want to talk about what it means that Jesus came to bring peace and what it means that Jesus died on a cross. Um, really, kind of what I want to talk about is what it doesn't mean. Um, and I'm going to look at four different passages. I'm going to look at Isaiah 1, Acts 2, Hebrews 10, and Psalm 22. Mostly because those are four passages that I've spent a lot of time with, and it was easy to write a message this week. <laughs> Growing up, um, I had a, a vision of God that was not very good. Because I grew up hearing stories about uh, a God that sounded kind of mean and cruel. And the way we told a lot of stories from the Old Testament, it wasn't hard for me to assume that that was the kind of God that we were supposed to fall in love with. I was always very confused by... I, I like animals. <laughs> um, and I was always very confused by the fact that in the Old Testament... God required people to do animal sacrifices, such as the yearly atonement sacrifice. If you think about it, it was a very bloody practice. The uh, high priest would have to kill a, an animal and take the blood and mix it with water and hyssop, and he would have to sprinkle himself, and then he would go in into the Ark of the Covenant, and this would cleanse him. And then he would come out and do the same with the people, kill another animal, and mix in the blood, and he would take his hyssop branch and sprinkle all of the people with it. And um, then he would go in and sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant with that. And the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence there in the temple and among God's people. <clears throat> um, and, you know, we, uh, we, I grew up being told, well, the, the problem was that that was because God can't forgive people unless something gets punished. And so I had this image of God in my head that said, God, God is a guy who uh, really, really needs to kill something. <laughs> or else he just can't be as loving and kind and gracious as he wants me to be. Try as I might, I've never been able to justify needing to kill somebody, to f- kill another animal to forgive somebody. And I never could understand we call that uh, big fancy theological word propitiation. Um, we in Christianity, a lot of times, we sort of assume that Jesus' sacrifice is doing exactly the same thing. God couldn't forgive us until somebody got killed, and in this case, Jesus was the one that got killed. But it's confusing then to read the prophets, and I think Isaiah in chapter one, um, kind of. Um, kind of really opens this conversation up. I'm going to read in Isaiah chapter 1. But what you should probably understand is that as Isaiah, like many of the prophets, says the same thing over and over again, he says that God says, I don't need these sacrifices. I don't need it. 
I don't need them. Listen to what he says in chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, who, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. Why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and bleeding wounds, they have not been drained or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your very presence, aliens devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And daughter Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a shelter in a cucumber field like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from you? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals, my soul hates They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. What I think Israel often did was they would get in their head that, well, we have a God who really needs something to die in order to forgive us. And so every now and then they would take an animal and they'd kill it and they would think that that has made God happy and they would go through their religious motions and they would feel better about themselves and then... They would go right about their lives being just as pagan and just as cruel and just as selfish and just as greedy and violent as everybody else. What we constantly see, and I think what Isaiah shows us, what we constantly see is that God wanted His people to be a different people. Not to be just a people... um, Uh, who are just like every other people, but to care about those who are marginalized, to love people that um, the rest of the world doesn't really have value for. He wanted them to be a called out people, 
And they had these sacrifices for a reason, but it wasn't what they thought. As soon as Israel would fall into the thinking that said, well, we can do whatever we want, and we can be just as pagan as the rest of the world, just as so long as we give God some blood, then He'll be happy and then we can go right on with our lives. Which was a way of confusing God with a pagan God who needs blood to be appeased. And, you know, the moment we kind of think like that, well, Jesus did what He did, and so I don't really have to be a different kind of person. He did what He did. He took care of my God problem for me. I think often enough what Israel assumed was not that they had a sin problem and a death problem, but that they had a God problem. And the problem was that that kind of thinking about sacrifice doesn't create a different people. It doesn't make them into a complete people or a whole people because it doesn't have anything to do with this world. It's sort of an otherworldliness. Um, look, God's mad. We had this problem with God in heaven, and we have to get him off our back, so let's kill this animal, and he'll be happy, and we can go back to doing whatever we want. And so in the end, what you have are people who are no different from the rest of the world, but are evil and greedy and violent, um, but also pretty self-righteous about the whole thing, because they've gone through the religious rigmarole, and they feel like they've done a really good job. And uh, God's happy with them, because they're focused on what's going on in the mind of God, instead of what's going on in their hearts and in their actions. And so their religion becomes a series of religious behaviors and rituals, which don't really have a bearing on the world. Because they're focused on doing rituals to appease God. Again, in that kind of thinking, the problem isn't sin and death, the problem is God. And that kind of religion ends up being obsessed with doing the right things the right way so that we can get on with being just as worldly as we were before. And not care about those who struggle. Well, some years ago I started asking myself, what about if those sacrifices weren't about appeasing God at all? What if what the prophets were telling us was true? That God never needed those sacrifices, but they had a different meaning entirely. This is why I want to go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, I think, comes right out and says this. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm not going to read very very far. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews is trying to tell uh, Jewish Christians not to go back to Judaism. He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment, or she's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of, of Judaism. Since the law was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect, we should read complete, make complete those who approach. Otherwise would they not have ceased being offered, since the worshippers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? The problem, according to the writer of Hebrews, was that we were conscious of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, though these are offered according to the law. Then he added, See, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Those sacrifices, according to the writer of Hebrews, were an annual reminder of sins. In other words, God didn't tell Israel to do them because God needed them to do them in order to forgive them. But He was trying to remind them of their sin. He was trying to associate sin as a lifestyle of death. And so... In the atonement sacrifice, when he would, the priest would sprinkle the people and put the blood on the people, the priest was saying, look, it's affected all of us. And what does it mean that the priest goes in and sprinkles the Ark of the Covenant with the same blood that it has affected God too? Sacrifices were a yearly reminder of sin, and they showed the evil of sin and revealed the depth of God's forgiveness. They could never make worshipers complete because they failed as a reminder. The people didn't internalize the law. It didn't change them. Which is why the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that God wants to write His laws on our hearts. He wants us to make us a different people. And so, Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews, is the complete sacrifice. And it's not because killing His own Son made the Father completely satisfied, but because our sin was revealed for just how evil it really is. Listen to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter, um, and starting in verse 22, Acts 2 verse 22. When Peter addresses the people in the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, I want you to notice what Peter doesn't say to them. Peter's not going to say, okay, folks, here's the problem. You're all sinners, and um, those old sacrifices aren't cutting it. The good news is God kills Jesus, and so he, now he feels better. Listen to what he says. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter doesn't say, you needed Jesus to die for you. He says, you killed the Son of God and you shouldn't have. But God raised him. It wasn't about satisfying some need to punish. It wasn't God's violence that necessitated Jesus' sacrifice. I grew up being told my whole life that God needed Jesus to die 
so that we could be forgiven. And yet when the apostles tell the story of Jesus' death, it isn't God that kills Jesus. It's evil people that killed Jesus. It wasn't God that necessitated Jesus' sacrifice. Instead, it it was our sin and our violence that killed God. God was on the cross. And people killed Him because He said it wasn't enough just to follow a bunch of religious rules and religious rigmarole. You need to be like me. You need to follow me. Let go of power and status and money and care about one another more than you care about yourselves. God was the one on the cross identifying with those who suffer injustice. And He was showing us that when we do evil, we do injustice to people, we participate in the very same thing, the very same injustice that was done to the Son of God. You killed Him. You killed the Son of God. But God raised Him. Now turn and follow Him. and Be baptized, Peter said. In other words, the, the Jewish people didn't look at it the way I sort of was raised to look at it. It wasn't that there was an angry God who needed to punish me. Instead, there was a God who came to bring peace and love, and I responded with violence. Just the same way I've responded with violence to other people that I should have shown love to. Jesus came to write the law on our hearts so that we would be a different people, a peaceful people, people who care about other people, people who follow Jesus and look like Jesus. And any time our religion or our religious practices become more important than the people God wants us to love, then we're practicing a sort of pagan religion and not Christianity. I want to close with a final point. I'm going to go to Psalm 22 to make it. This is my favorite psalm. There's a moment on the cross when Jesus cries out to the Father, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've been told that's the moment when God's anger rested on Jesus and He had to turn His... I used to sing a song. We used to sing a song in my old church. The Father turned His face away from the Son. Well, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And whenever you uh, read in the New Testament uh, quoting a single verse of the Old Testament, you should probably understand that the writer or the speaker is wanting to refer to the entire section. I want you to listen to what the writer of Psalm 22, what David said. David is going through something terrible. He feels forsaken by God. Listen to what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Ever been there where you're so hurt, you're so anxious, you're so worried, somebody's come against you so hard, and you just cry out because you feel like God's not really even there. 
Have you ever been so hurt that you've thought, where is God? That's what David is asking. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let Him deliver. Let Him rescue the one in whom He delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bowls encircled me. Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and my feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. From the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who hear, fear the Lord, praise Him. And you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide His face from me, but heard when I cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. To Him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. The Father does not turn his face away from those who suffer. I don't think he was disgusted at Jesus and looked away. He doesn't turn away from our suffering or the suffering of the afflicted. When Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was expressing the very same question that we all express when we suffer. And that is, where is God? But he was also answering the question, God is here. He is in the suffering and God suffers with you. That was the image of the sacrifice in the Old Testament, sprinkling the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. God has been affected too by your sin. The cross says it fully and completely. 
here the Son of God has sacrificed Himself, being killed by an evil people and offering forgiveness. And in that moment, He was identifying with all the injustice that we have identified with. He didn't do it so that we don't have to. He did it and said, come and bear the cross with me. Which means that this religion, Christianity, is about something more than Jesus getting knocked around to satisfy an angry God who needs to punish someone. It means that it's more than just a bunch of rituals and behaviors to get that sacrifice to apply to us. It's more than solving some otherworldly problem in the mind of God. It means this is about writing God's laws on our hearts. It's about being truly changed. It's about being a people who care more about others than we care about ourselves. It's about dying on the cross with Jesus.